Welcome to Season 2 of Connect to Capital, a podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm Samar Michaela, co-CEO at Scale Investors, and I will be your host. Gender does not limit access to capital, and we're on a mission to maximise returns by investing into Australia's best women-led startups. We know the transformational power of collaboration, and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education, and deep network to enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors. We believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We are thrilled to play our part in providing entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. And if you're keen to invest and maximise your returns into Australia's best women-led startups, we have the perfect product for you, the Scaling Women's Fund. an overlooked market. Get in touch today by emailing ceo at scaleinvestors.com.au to learn more. And make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss a minute. What a way to end the season. Amanda Price is one person I've been dying to connect with for such a long time. To my absolute delight, she's shared so much of her journey and importantly herself, one I think so many in this space will resonate with and perhaps share her lived experience. Amanda's background as a startup operator put her at the forefront of the nascent Australian startup world back in the early 2000s. Amanda was the CEO of Airworks Media in 2003 before relocating to Los Angeles to become iCorp's vice president. Amanda then joined Aussie Merge, representing Australian-based ventures, working with 80 high-growth technology-enabled companies to accelerate their entry into the US. Along with Advance, Amanda developed the Elevate 61 Accelerator and ran it for three years before joining KPMG as the head of high growth ventures in late 2016, a role she continues to hold today. Amanda not only shares so much of herself in this episode, but also some fantastic tips on the importance of self-awareness, working with people not like you, coaching, and the icebox concept on staying focused. If you loved this season and our Connect to Capital podcast, let us know and send an email to ceo at scaleinvestors.com.au on who you want to hear from in 2024. If there is enough interest, we'll run season three. Thanks so much, Amanda, for joining us today on the podcast. Like I said before, I'm really excited to have finally met you. So really keen to chat to you today. We always really love to start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, your personal background and how your personal background and upbringing has impacted your career and, and got you to where you are today. I think a lot of this sort of started, if I think about the when I went to uni and, and a lot of my friends, nearly all my friends wanted to go into big corporates and I remember just thinking I cannot understand why anyone would want to work in a big business and I remember thinking, like I was never at school a rule break or anything like that. I just remember thinking through school and uni and it's more that I thought the rules didn't apply <laughs> to me. And so I, I sort of was like, I knew I wanted an environment that was quite different. And I was lucky enough to get a role with a company called Tech Pacific, which weirdly enough, was it came out of a company called Imagineering, which Jody Rich was still too young, but Jody Rich was also OneTel, the disaster of OneTel led that. So anyway, he had a company called Imagineering that went broke and it turned into Tech Pacific. And I started there in the early days. That company grew so fast and it was just an incredible experience to start in something as such a junior and five years later be head of sales and marketing national national retail sales head of marketing so I think from that I just got a taste of what it can be like if it's chaotic which I loved love the growth of it love the fact that you can take on so much that 
if you had a job description, you'd grow out of it so quickly. So that sort of started me on a path, I think, where I went, I just want that. And so that then led into startups, led into me having a startup called um, Airworks, which I had for three years and we sold, which led to me going to the US with another startup, a Channel 10 owned startup, and sort of going from there. So I think for me, I was drawn to being in this space at the initial part, yeah, just because of the pace and it was fun and, and it's a lot, you know, it's pressure and I think it, all of that was very challenging and interesting to me. And then actually as the startup ecosystem started to grow, if you think back when I started Airworks in the late 1990s, there wasn't a startup community or anything like that. And as that started to grow, you realise that people attracted to that were the types of people that were I wanted to hang around with as well. And I think... Then it's that culture about that sort of pay it forward type culture, which I loved. And so all of that just became very appealing. And then over the years, I sort of stayed along this path. I've read a few things and listened to a few things that you've been a part of. And I think it, it's exactly like that's definitely a common thread through all the pieces of work that you've done. And I guess is probably what's led you here to running the high growth ventures at KPMG is really just making sure that there's enough entrepreneurs and, and people within creating that ecosystem and being part of that to help the next generation of entrepreneurs be successful. That's right. And I think I remember when I sort of initially launched High Growth Ventures and where, you know, I pitched it to the firm as an idea about seven years ago, we're an investment for the firm. One of them, they've got quite a number of investments and we're just one of those. But I had a view that, that the big four had a role to play. Like there is a lot of not, and I mean, we don't take equity or anything like that, but there was a role to play. And that role was to solve a certain problem that I had had in startups, which was when you start to grow, who do you go to? How do you find an advisor? How do you understand the product? Like, how do you actually vet them when you don't understand? I don't understand finance. How do I find the right finance people? How do I do it quickly? And could there be one place I could go and they would guide me on? And that was sort of the, the premise behind High Growth Ventures and being more of a really just helping founders save time and money and angst around that decision-making. And that was sort of the premise point of it, yeah. I just want to pick up on one thing you said a couple of times, actually, about you didn't think the rules applied to you. And, you know, that you've, I guess, found your people in this space. And I think that there's a lot of research to also suggest that investors and founders alike, there's, there's a very high proportion of them that are neurodivergent. And essentially, the rules don't apply to these people. So what are your thoughts on that? Where do you think that comes from? And was there something that, why don't the rules apply to Amanda Price? I'm really curious. Yeah, it sounds like a funny thing to say. It's, well, obviously, I am ADHD, so that's come out as well. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's come out and over the years quite strongly. And something I actually had through a lot of, you know, my parents had me test when I was young, We didn't be- and we didn't believe it. And then over the years, it came out where I'd see a GP or something, and they'd go, I really think you should be tested, and I just wouldn't do it. And, and it's certainly much more accepted now than what it was 10 years ago and about 10 years ago there were a few things that happened and under stress for me it gets a lot that it can get quite a lot worse (laughs) I shouldn't say worse actually it can just I can get quite erratic in the thinking and I find it hard to sell things like that and eventually I decided to to get tested and I didn't believe I had to be tested three times properly I wouldn't believe the diagnosis I just thought but I think it's something around that I think it's it's not an arrogant thing like I'm a rule breaker it's just it is a came out I remember when I was a kid my parents took me to his therapist to be tested and they just he just said look there's just things she won't do like when if like with maths I was like I'm never going to have a career in maths I hate it I'm hopeless at it so I just refused to do it I just was like it doesn't apply to me I don't get why I have to do it 
And I don't think that's always a positive thing. I think to my detriment in a lot of things, like I wish I'd learned Excel better and things like that. But I was like, I'm never going to use it. I don't, I don't want to learn it. But I do think it does help you find things that you really love. And once you find them, I think I've got better, quite good at that because I don't try and be good at everything. And I think the other side, my best friend, he's someone that actually goes, well, I'm not good at finance. I'll go and do an MBA where I'm like, if I'm not good at finance, I'll never do it. I'll find someone else to do it. And I'll focus on other things and get really good at the things I'm good at. So yeah, really harness your superpowers. I love that. I think there's something to be said for particularly in venture with investors and founders. And I mean, you've taken both, well, you're essentially doing both now and really started as a founder. And I agree, I think. And the research is like, it absolutely confirms that because I think there has to be a little, there has to be that kind of hyper focus when you're wanting to build a business and really harness your super strength. And I think also another thing for certainly for diverse founders that we find and and comes out in research a lot, and particularly for women, a lot of our investment committee members say this, one of them in particular is that women in particular know what they're not good at and know the gaps. And that is actually, you mentioned it might be to your detriment. I actually think it's the opposite. Like, you know what you're good at. And so you focus on that and then you kind of bring all those people in that surround you that that are good at other things that you know you need, but you don't necessarily have to be the one to execute on that. I think it's actually a really good thing. I think it is. I think I, I do think women are very aware of their where they're good and where they're not. Unfortunately, and we've worked with a lot of founders over the last sort of last 10 years, a lot of female-led businesses, is that I sometimes think like women do try and be good at every, you know, want to think they need to be good at everything. And I think that's definitely a female trait. And also that that sort of leaning into perfectionism. I think some of the stuff we're doing is really, and again, you just don't see it as much with the men. It's like it doesn't have to be, especially product market fit. You've just got to get out there and try things and experiment. If you're trying to get it perfect, it doesn't need to be perfect. It's just got to be, sometimes it's got to be fast. And fast doesn't actually equal perfect. And I think with that sort of thing, I think getting women founders just to trust themselves and get out there and keep moving forward without that perfectionist streak is also super helpful. I well, we tend to say that a lot, and I think I'm also sometimes guilty of perfectionism. <laughs> do you see that a lot with the companies? With the yeah, we do. We absolutely see that a lot, and really encourage. It's part of like I think the dismantling of almost. I think it's got to do with you know a societal expectation about how you need to present. And how you've been socialized as as a woman growing up in this environment. I think it's all part of that. And it's really kind of trying to unravel and unpack that to encourage more. And I think also particularly in Australia, the tall poppy syndrome as well, like that kind of really starts infiltrating and, and doesn't enable you to fail fast and fail forward and encourage that culture. I think people talk about it, but it's not necessarily really encouraged enough as it I think it should be. That's right. Especially in the my team is quite skewed towards females and, and we do a lot of testing and experimenting and, and we've had to work out ways of getting them comfortable with that. And and actually one of the ways we found is to put a bit more structure around it, put a hypothesis, say we're going to test it for this period of time, and that's really helped actually and probably made us better at it. But it is interesting with that. And I also think on the other side there's a bit of a good girl, you've got to be a good girl. Type. And I think that is, I just, when I see that, especially in my team, it's something I'm just like, do not do not give in to that good girl. It will not get you anywhere. It actually just panders to the whole how women have to be in society. And the founders, some of the founders I see who are extraordinary do not care less. I look at it, just don't seem to pander to that. I look at people like Olympia from Goterra, Barb from Sapio AR. Like they're, to me, they're just 
out there and they, they're just leading their business with a ferocity that is neither male or female. They're just founders out there doing it. And it's awesome to see that, that some of those founders coming through and getting funding. Yeah. And I think, yeah, we need to dismantle that as much as we possibly can because it's a balance and I guess it's kind of going on that journey and, and supporting each other there. I also really love the um, hypotheses and then iterating on that and testing it and creating a structure that makes you more comfortable for sure. It is because, you know, it's, I've learned through the years, like I remember when I started here, I was so Coming into KPMG, I had never felt more out of place and not they're lovely. I mean, the, the people in here are lovely. I love it. But when I first started, I just couldn't. I don't even have friends that are, I didn't know what an audit was. I don't have friends that do accounting or, and I just was, it was so different and the rules were so different and things like that. It was just a, a very different experience and trying to learn to keep your own, not conform trying to continue to ask myself, who am I serving if I conform or come be, try and be this good girl because I was trying to build something that was so so fundamentally different to the way they do their business that there was a lot of things I think in that that came up for me that took a lot of time and probably too much wine to work through. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned Olympia and Barbara, so a couple of entrepreneurs. So what have you learned most from the entrepreneurs that, that you work with? I learn a lot from the ones that are good and from the ones that are still learning, I think, as well. And I think what I see is that, things I mentioned before, there is a speed and a focus with that's the prioritization, I think. And that sort of getting very focused, especially in the early stage, you just have to really know what you're if you're going for that product market fit, you know, often we just see founders trying to do too many other things. It's like get the product market fit. You know, I'm a big believer in founder-led sales. If you can start a startup, majority of types of, you know, there's some exceptions, but you have to be out there selling. And I, another observation, and again, a generalization that I would make is that I sometimes see females setting up their business in an incredibly fabulous way. It is structured, the governance is in place, they've got a CRM, they've got the process, they're not out there selling, because it's really hard. It's very confront. It's very confronting to sell to most people, you know, even salespeople, it's still hard. And so I think, making sure that the good ones are out there in market, like Barb and like Olympia, they're out, really out there. And I think that's so incredibly important. And I think it's also the as they start to progress through, let's say, moving into a Series B, what I do see is what sets them apart is the ability to look beyond the next milestone. So everyone's racing for that next milestone, but you see some of them are going, okay, what do I need to look like? I want to know when I become a Series B, C, what governance, what are where investors, they'll start to really start thinking ahead. And I think that puts some of them quite far ahead of the others who are dealing with all the issues as they come up. And, you know, then you have to be at a certain stage of funding to even breathe, have enough air <laughs> and time and space to start thinking like that. But again, the good ones set it up so they do have that and they really start thinking and planning ahead, especially we're now seeing companies, we're now seeing more M&A activity, which is fantastic. And we're also starting to see founders, we're working with, a number, a handful of founders who have gone, I want to exit in three years. And we're working with them now to think about getting them exit ready. So what does that look like? And to me, they're the really good ones that are actually starting to really think through that. And that also to me implies a increased sophistication in our startup ecosystem because, you know, I've been in this space for a long time, even at KPMG for seven years, say, we haven't done any of that work before. It's not a result of people going, oh, this is really hard. And it's not that. They're founders that are doing well going, I want I want an exit. And I think, great, you know, they're thinking about how do I optimise the liquidity event? How do I minimise my taxes? How do I get myself personally ready? You know, because it's a lot on your own 
the amount that you will get from the next step, what are you going to do with it? Like thinking through all those things is so important. So I think there's some of the things that I think that I would model if I was back in doing founder, I would try and be following those sort of traits. On the topic of capital raising, what are your thoughts on, and I think we hear this a lot, I certainly do in my role, in terms of getting capital locally or overseas? Yeah, it's a, I was actually at lunch last week and it was very anti-Australia at the moment. And, and look, I think to put things in first bit of context setting is we've had a very difficult two years, let's say 18 months. And the switch that VCs did, which was a focus on growth to a quick then to profitability, took a lot of people by surprise. And a lot of companies haven't been able to make that shift as quickly as they'd like. A lot of them have, built, have capital intensive models and that's not appealing anymore. And that's a very hard thing to hear when you were supported all the way for the last few years. And I think there's a bit of a backlash. And I don't know this, I personally don't support this view that it's the VC's fault. And I mean, what I, I just think, but I get it's really hard. And I think there, from that, there's a bit of an anti-Australian VC sentiment, which is going, I just want to go overseas or I want to have money from family offices sort of thing. So that sort of shifted. And, and to answer your question more specifically, I think it's very hard to get a US VC to fund the growth into the US. So I think if you can get the funding here and prove out your model, prove customers, get some growth in other markets, so you're proving that, use it for that, you're probably better positioned to get funding from, from US. It's also the US typically, they're not doing small check sizes, the funds are too big, we all know that. So it's like you have to be at the right stage. And so I don't think it's as simple as going, I just want money from the US. I don't see many companies having success with that. And I think that they definitely want to see you have some understanding of the US market, your go-to-market strategy in that market and how you're actually going to customers and recognising the market is very different. It's the people are different. I lived there for eight years. It's like living on the moon. It's just totally different. Yeah. So what do you think the VCs then are looking for, either here or, or overseas? Well, I think the big line, and you know this, is what are VCs looking for, you know, unicorn <laughs> companies are going to check. That's the, but like what are they really looking for now, I suppose, is businesses that what we're seeing is, and the ones sort of they're sending our way are often businesses who just haven't got their finance function the right. It's not set up in a way they can really understand the levers. They can, it's not, the data's not granular enough. They're not using sort of systems to, to automate, automate their board report. Like there's just none of that sort of thinking. So I think when they look at that and it's not really where it needs to be, it implies the founder lacks the sophistication around the driving of their business because at the heart of it is finance and the function around that. And where I say finance too, I probably put the CRM and, and the processes, sort of the tech stack, all of that. How is that working? How is that going to scale? Who's managing it? And I think that's a big thing we're seeing because we haven't seen many VCs do due diligence. We should do due diligence for quite a few of the VCs, like due diligence and finance. We haven't done it for three years for any VC. So it went away when there was a lot of capital and now it's sort of starting to, VCs are certainly looking much more at, at that. And really what we've done, which we haven't done a lot before, and this is a reason of two things. One, we're dealing with a lot of climate tech impact, deep tech companies who, especially in the climate tech space, a lot of them don't come from financial backgrounds and things same with deep tech. So it's really getting that, the, getting their finance functions set up. But then it's like, how do they articulate the impact so we do the next piece of modelling after the financial modelling is impact modelling, which quantify, helps them quantify the impact. Then we layer on top of that, we help them with the narrative. So how do they speak to VCs around the impact their business will have now and in the future? And I think that's sort of something that I think now founders need to get very, very good at. 
because next year we're moving into an environment where if I just look at our portfolio, 70% have indicated they're going to raise. I would say that's across the, we're hearing that everywhere. And so the doors won't open automatically again for capital. It'll take time, I believe, for that to sort of happen. It's happening now, but whether it's going to go back to what it was two years ago, probably not. So that means we're in a highly competitive environment. So what I would say to founders is get your house in order because you're competing. It's a very competitive environment. So your finance function, you just have to get that in order. You know, there's all your strategy, the data rooms, always on data rooms, things like that are just a basic expectation, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting about the finance function and, and how the CRM and the tech stack kind of works hand in hand because, um, I mean, even from a running a syndicate and raising our fund, we have we, that's exactly what we need to be doing. And every VC does as well. Like we're all companies as well and we all have LPs and we all have investors as well. So I think it's it's certainly having that process around how people are going through the funnel and what is that funnel and what does it look like and how does what's the conversion look like and and what are those kind of key points and and, and I think the overlay that you talk about in terms of the how you speak to that to an investor is so different to how you speak to a customer and understanding that that narrative and, and how that shifts based on your audience is, is really important. What about, you know, so when we're talking, I really like how you're really helping create that impact narrative as well as the impact measurements and how that feeds into your finance, your, the running of your business. How do you think about the narrative around artificial intelligence? And how to, I think it's very easy for people to talk about that. And I mean, we, and I'm sure you guys do, we, we use it in our business as well, open source anyway. How does that kind of feed in and how do you help and what advice do you have for founders in terms of talking about that narrative? Yeah, and it's not an area of expertise for me. I mean, I, I think I was on a panel actually, this is sort of a side note, the other day with a few of the VCs, Melissa Whitner from Lighter Capital, Chris Gillings from Bifi and Krill Price from Investable. And, and one of the things, a question came up about AI and one of the things they agreed on actually is just around what do they think about pure play AI, AI models in Australia? Would, would they invest in that? And they all said no. And the reason they said no is because they believe when they look at the US, a similar US company or Australian US that are doing the same thing, you know, the US company is getting $300 million in investment and we're getting five. So that, it was just interesting to see it from that point of view in terms of pure play. Now, businesses, like I would say it would be an expectation for businesses to be using AI in some form in their business. And I also think that's going to be looked at moving forward, I think we're there yet, in your own business. Like right now we're looking at how do we apply AI, how do we use that to increase productivity and things like that. So I think there's a lot of layers to think about and I don't know whether anyone's probably got it, well, probably VCs have got a better answer than me, but I think it's increasingly important. But I think now people, like you just said, I I agree that people are very wise to the fact that don't say you've got it if you haven't got it because there's a bit of a joke around that sort of thing. So I think you really need to be able to show that you're using it in a unique way and it's a bit of an expectation that you'd be using it in a normal way. You mentioned before 70% of your portfolio companies are probably going to raise in 2024 and I mean I think we're also seeing the latest article in AFR a couple of months ago was there are at least 10 VCs trying to raise capital at the moment as well and I think that the bigger VCs might be coming back to market next year as well just based on the cycle. <laughs> when should founders be really thinking about raising and I know, and I'm sure you're in the same boat, is we've certainly seen a lot of founders sort of knuckle down in 2023, maybe shred as much as they possibly can. When should founders really be thinking about raising and, and how do you think the best way to approach that is in 2024? You obviously mentioned before 
it's going to be super highly competitive. And so, you know, the narrative in your finances and having your house in order is, is critical. But I think it's going to be hard if you don't have a growth story. If you've cut too hard, and I, look, we're working with a couple of founders on this at the moment, they've sort of cut so hard, there's no growth. So I don't really know what the investor's going to invest in. And so it's sort of like, you know, that's what they, they wanted a path to profitability. They still want companies to grow. And I'm not saying that's in any way easy <laughs> to multitask in such a way, but you will need to show some growth, you know, a growth story around this and a path to profitability and growth. So when should you go? I mean, that's a very individual, you know, it's, it's quite individual and I think you need to go and you need to go and we're going to have companies that are there to go and start that process all through the year. I think one thing that they're going to look at, and we've seen this a lot, and this, I don't know, this might be boring things, so I'm not quite sure, but the reason that sort of quite a few of our founders were taking a long time to raise is because when they went to the VC and they said, these are the, these are our numbers, our forecasts, all of that sort of stuff, they said, great, what we want you to do is track it for the next three months and report to us against that. And so I think now if you're trying to raise, you know, one of the things is how are you sort of communicating that you're hitting your targets if you are to those investors ahead of time, which therefore, you know, hopefully shortens that period as well. So I think things like that. The other thing is granularity around your sales data, and you touched on this before, it's one thing I'm pretty strong on around I want to see in a pipeline MQL to SQL to conversion rates to close. What are those conversion rates? How are you actually tracking along that? Do you have visibility of your full pipeline and also the upsell resell piece, which most businesses have this day now? Like once you've closed, how do you track that? Also the customer success piece. So really you're getting into the customer. How are you? Obviously your retention rates, all of that sort of thing, but can you grow the customer? But you know, how are you actually servicing them post-sale? And also the loop around customer feedback. How is that to me? Like they're critical things I think they're looking at. Even now. They're ringing customers. VCs are very like really starting to reach out, which they might have been doing before. I just wasn't aware that it was really happening. It seems to be happening quite uh, with a few of ours. I've had to give quite a lot of customer information, and, and the VCs are sort of checking that. So, I think that's another interesting thing to think about as well. You mentioned MQL. Can you just just in case someone on like, whoever's listening might not understand exactly what you mean? Absolutely. So, you know, for, if I think about my business, so High Growth Ventures. We have a range of activities we do to drive awareness and leads, right? And so all of that, let's say it's an event, it's a podcast, it's, you know, what we do is all of those get entered into our CRM. So they all flow into the CRM and then we track all of those. So it's, it is, so I, we might do this interview and we might get 100 leads. From so that's an MQL. So it's a marketing qualified, it's coming through marketing. Well, actually they don't, they all go into a big pool and then it becomes a marketing qualified lead once they get reviewed. So that looks at, and then we go, oh, that's, then it goes to sales. So it's a sales qualified lead. Then it goes to the sales team and then they have four stages to move through till it close. And so what we're trying to track is the entire journey of the origination of that lead through to close. And obviously we track the cost of that, which is your ROI as well. So how is that performing? But then, you know, on that too, you have to differentiate between what is a brand building? Because we don't expect the leads from that. So the ROI is all going to be different. What's a lead jet? So it's really just making sure that your business is set up in a way that you can track end to end, not only track the conversions and everything, it's the cost of that, so the cost of the lead. And so then you can see how efficiently your business is, is running and which channels are more efficient than others. I just thought that was a good exercise to go through for those that are listening in. Yeah, and just a, a thing too, we use we use a sales and marketing methodology called winning by design. Now, 
most of it's free. If you go and look up Winning Buyers, there's heaps of YouTube videos. You'll find the founder called Yako. You will look at it and go, why has she made me go to this website? But Chrissy seems a bit crazy. It is so sophisticated. It is a data-led sales model. And it's if you can start looking at some of those, if you're thinking about how to set up your sales function or improve it, go and have a look, download some of the videos. It's like it is free. It's there. And they'll show you the model that we've used. And I've got to say, once we implemented Winning by Design, it changed our business fundamentally. So it's worth having a look at. We've covered a lot on like some advice for founders on sales and balancing marketing or growth versus a sustainable line to profitability. What is the best advice you have received in your role? Because you've also covered a lot on, you know, the challenges and why you do what you do. But what is the best advice you've received? Don't try and do it all at once, probably. I find it hard to not see the vision and run really fast at it. (laughs) And I think what's helped me is to learn to break it down and to prioritise and do that with a lot more thought than what I used to. I think I was very used a lot of instinct and probably no data. And actually, the other thing we use is, I don't know, you know, winning uh, sort of fingerprints for success. Have you used the... So we use that for our team and it's fantastic. So if you want to look at your profile as a founder or actually we use it for the whole team. So our whole team does it. We track it and look at everyone's skills. So I would definitely recommend it. It's fantastic. But one of the things it showed, which my team laughed their head off, was that I'm massively action orientated. I run at everything and I don't need any data. <laughs> so it was like, whoa, not good. So, I mean, the energy levels are good and everything, but it's like now I sort of work with my team. Like my two I see is the exact opposite of me in profile. And she's very, so it's been very helpful for us to learn how to work together. And she really helps me with a bit more restraint around things, the prioritization. And the other thing is I have a real need to redo stuff. I see a better way. I just want to redo it completely. And I've learned not to do that. So it's sort of, it is taking a bit of a step back and learning to stick to a plan. And the other side is have someone that you work with that's not like you. It's really helpful. And the other, probably the, the real the real thing to say there is learn as much about yourself as you can. The more you learn about yourself and the more you understand it, like fingerprint success is an awesome tool for that. It's really helped me. And I have a coach as well, which has also really helped. And I've found the more I've learned about myself, the better I'm at choosing who's around me, the better decisions I make and being aware of some of the things that I do that are not helpful. And for example, one of the things I thought, when I joined here, I've got a team and I thought that what was really exciting for people was to work with someone like me who had lots of energy and lots of ideas and lots of changes and driving the business. And they all got together and then came to me and went, we hate it. <laughs> Stop doing it. And I was mortified, but it was the best best feedback because I was like, I thought you loved it. And they're like, we never get to finish anything. You're always moving to the next thing. And so we had a system called the Icebox where all of my stuff would go into there and it would stay there and let me think about it because then a lot of them I found went away over time because was, they weren't that good ideas. And we sort of had a process for that. So, I mean, I could put them somewhere and they would be sort of looked at nominally, but it would allow the team to keep focusing on things. And I think I think checking in with your team, building the trust in the team so they can come to you and give you that feedback. Well, without that, I wouldn't have no idea because I genuinely thought that's what everyone wanted. And now I go, how is it I even, I don't even know how to thought that. But, and that's not that long ago, it's like three or four years ago, but, and it, it wasn't a hard thing to turn around. It's like once we worked out a system for it, it was like, you know, a bit of mortification, but after that I was fine. And realising that that's what you want in your teams. You want people that are different. You want people that are going to push back. You want them to be safe, but you also want them when you go, we're going in this direction. I've heard the input. 
I need you all to go. You also need them to go with you. Not everyone's going to be happy and that's okay too. So it's just being a leader, isn't it, at the end of the day? Yeah. I love that. Self-awareness is a journey, isn't it? Like it's never ending. Ongoing. I'm like, no, I'm not have to have my therapist. Oh my God. But it is, it's, it is, and it really helps you better at your job. And it's one, I mean, relationships, all the other things, but if you want something that helps self-awareness for me and the feedback, asking for that feedback and not being scared, it is hard it's, and it is mortifying, as I said, but it's good. You just sort of go away and sit in the corner for a while and then come back out and you're fine. Yeah. I mean, and I think diversity of thought and this, I really love this ice box concept. It sounds, um, it was really good. I think I need to implement that. We don't have it anymore because I've learned not to voice every idea that comes into my head. And I've learned that it does not help the team function to have someone doing that, dropping in. And it was just that I would get excited because they do what I asked them to do. And then I think, oh, there's a better, now there's a better way. And it's, that's, it's just not helpful. But yeah, self-awareness definitely is at the heart of it, I think. And I look at, you know, when we work with founders and there's founder conflict and when we're looking at yeah, staff retention rates are low, who's got staff leaving all the time, things like that, a lot of that is you look at that and it's founders just with a lack of awareness and really not understanding what they're really good at and also really thinking what impact am I having? Where do I need to focus to have the most impact? And sometimes that's not necessarily what you're good at. I do have to do a lot of internal stakeholder management. I have to get the, you know, raise funding in here and do all the business cases and, and strategy it's not necessarily the thing I'm best at, I wouldn't think, but it is my job to do it and it's where I have the most impact. My team cannot do it. They shouldn't be doing it in a hierarchical structure like KPMG. It would be weird if someone went and tried to do that. It wouldn't go down well. So it's, it is really thinking through the role that you have to play and the impact that, you you know, there is these things I have to do and where the most impact that you can have is. And I think that's another thing you have to really sort of think through because for all of us, what's time is so limited. So where are you going to choose to focus it? Yeah, I really like that actually, like understanding where your impact and, and where you need to be influencing, irrespective of whether or not it's what you want to be doing. Yeah, I mean, often we do find it correlates, the impact you have correlates with what you're good at because it's it, it sort of naturally does. But I can tell you when I started at KPMG, if someone had said to me, your role will consist of 30% lobbying, I would have been like, what? And actually, weirdly enough, now I love it. <laughs> it's actually part of the fun, the fun thing, but anyway. Who's been the most influential person in your life that you admire and, and has helped you kind of get to where you are now? I'm pretty like open to mentor. Like I like finding people who will coach and help me. And I'm a big one on when I have a problem, I'm, I will go and seek it. But I, I think the problem I see at the moment actually in founders is often, oh God, they've got so many investors and everyone on their boards and things like that. They're getting too much advice, to be honest, from too many different sources. So I think you've got to limit it to a certain degree. But I've had a number of people in KPMG and externally that have really helped me. So I think it is a whole range of people. But I think it's saying that you have to be careful of who you choose in that group. I don't think it's a it's a random thing. I think really making sure that the person you're going to with that problem has deep, deep expertise in it, not a one-off expertise and things like that. So, look, I hate to sort of – I'd hate to call one out because I genuinely think there's just been – so many. I will refer back. I've got a coach, Ben Hudson, and I would say if I was to say who was who has had the most impact on me and therefore impacted my performance in a positive way it would be him. And that's and he sort of I would say he walks a lot. And I know he works with a lot of founders and lots will recognize his name, but he's just helped so many he's called me out on so many things. I'm just like 
you know, when I you get called out, you're like, oh, my God, I know I do that. It's been that and the growth of that. And I can't stress enough for founders, if you can afford it, when you can afford it, get some good coaching. It's a, the right coach. And I've had a few that haven't been great, but when you get the right fit, gosh, it makes such a difference. I, I couldn't push that strongly enough. What are some of your favourite books and podcasts and any productivity hacks that you might have that you'd like to share? Oh, I wish I had productivity hacks. I mean, you'd be pretty busy, I'd imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think um, once, the, with, with the productivity, I'll start there at the end, this is normal, then work way through. But I think was once I realised I, I accepted I had ADHD, I went to an ADHD coach and they helped me with process. And that really, I was like, wow, <laughs> is this how other people do it? <laughs> so I think a good productivity hack for me was getting someone to review my systems. I actually did then do PuddlePod, Michael Batko's PuddlePod, which is the productivity. And I loved it because I met such good people on it. But unfortunately, I didn't realise KPMG, we can't use any of the tools. <laughs> but I had a good time. And I thought in theory, it looked amazing. And I'd recommend it to anyone if you want to get. So my productivity hack would go to go to Michael Batko's Puddle Pod and join that. That it was excellent. And I did learn a lot and learn how to use Notion and things like that, which I didn't know. So I thought that was good. Again, on the productivity side, I'm very lucky to have my 2OC, who is the complete opposite and is always setting things up for me to follow. I'm very good if I'm told how to follow things. I don't have to just listen to this. She might say no, but I think I am. So there's that. On the books and everything in the podcast, look, I think you've got to balance. You've got to have a fun podcast that you listen to. I don't make it all about, like, I used to be so just feel like I was, I felt really guilty if I wasn't listening to a work-related podcast. And if I wasn't just like on Innovation Bay and everything, listen to everyone's podcasts and stuff like that I think there's a real fatigue that can come from that there are so many great podcasts out there and we all we all know them I hear them on your show like people mention the same ones over and over and I think they're all really great but I would say go and search for some stuff that's outside of work as well like I listen to Smartless which is just a three guys in the US Jason Bateman and that leads it and, and Will Arnett and, a few, and it's hilarious it's just interview, interview stars and go and listen to something like that because it's really fun and I think like Mamma Mia I actually I, a lot of people don't like Mamma Mia. I've started, well, not a lot, some people have said they didn't, but it's weird. I started to listen to it and you know what I realised is I was not listening to the female voice enough in my, all the male, a lot of the business podcasts are all men. It's very male dominated and not that Mamma Mia is a business podcast, but I was not thinking it through in that. It's been a really interesting over the last six months I started listening to it going, oh, this is the women's voice and how they see things. So for me, although that's not business, it's really been sort of helpful in my view of things. So I think go a bit broader because, again, we want diverse thinking. We don't want everyone coming in preaching lean startup and, you know, which I loved. The hard thing about hard things, I loved that book. I've got the audio thing. I just love it. I don't think there's anything much better than that. Other than that, I really have a business review, so I'm subscribed to that. I love it. For me, it suits me because there's articles rather than very long books and things like that. So. I think that's really interesting. But again, diversity. You know, I don't ever read at night. I love reading at night. I was reading for an hour. I never read anything business related. Never. I have such a scattered approach to my uh, podcast <laughs> <It's> listening. <laughs> yeah. And educate because I agree. I think I think you want to have perspective of different voices. And to do that, it needs to be outside your work related space. Because it becomes fairly repetitive as well, right? It's a bit of an echo chamber. It does. And it's like, I think I listened to so many founder stories at one stage. I was just like, and again, there's a fatigue with that because everyone's doing different things a different way. It can be really good and then quite confusing, I think. The other thing I did do is I went to Folklores. I did their revenue chapter 
they're these free prep, so good. You do just listen to different, not just, you, they get amazing people on talking about different perspectives on revenue and things, which was, there's different modules. I loved it. I really loved it. I came out, I learned a lot, and it was a really easy way, they, the way they set it up. I thought it was very good. I also did the um, climate tech one through Startmate. I really like all the courses that they're offering at the moment. Some of the VCs have got some great programs, so I'd go and do. I think they're really interesting. So I sort of go, if you're a bit over reading the hard thing about hard things, go and do one of those courses and learn a bit more. And I think that's a really interesting way to sort of learn and also connect with other founders because there's all other founders on it and they share, which I think we sometimes think, oh, they must all know each other and they don't. It's true. I think a lot of a lot of what we do at Scale as well is about creating community and connection with like-minded founders and or different founders and just people that aren't in your circle. It's really important. It's not the best way to learn, but it's a great way. And people do, like, I think some of the VCs now do such a good job of it and Innovation Bay and all of this, you know, there's a lot of community being built. There's also a lot of people outside of the community that are founders that aren't, you know, so it's sort of reaching them as well. And I think for them, those people, if they feel outside, sometimes joining these programs, you get access to all the other founders. It was like, I don't know, there's over 100, I'm sure there's over 100 on the on the folklore one, but there's so many other founders you can reach out to afterwards. They're asking questions that you want to know, you know, if you feel it's sort of the same question, like reach out or, so I think that's also a good way if you want to proactively build your own community. We're at scale, we're on a mission to maximise investor returns by investing in the best women-led entrepreneurs across ANZ and, and globally is our kind of ambition. What advice do you have for us to kind of achieving the, you know, closing the investment gender gap and, and becoming the, you know, diversity house for, for investment? I mean, you're already doing, in terms of going, like you're going after that, you know, you're targeting that group, you're going after that group, I'd say, and, you, and you're doing already doing that piece. So not being a VC, I don't have a lot to add on to that side. And you guys do it really well. So in terms of, you're right, building community, everyone knows who you are, they're coming to you, you've got a very clear mandate and, and things like that. I think that the actual next piece is how do you help founders? How do we, and I think about this all the time, help founders, like we can do it with the finance and all the things I've talked about and the sales and how they set it up. The next piece for me is the international piece. And I think there's a lot of work to be done on that. I just think, again, I had a sort of a business that helped Australian founders launch over into the US when I was in the US. And without going into a huge amount of detail, I think we're looking at whether we run a program that helps founders work out whether they're ready and I think we could save so much money and so much angst if we can get that piece right before the next piece. So I think as investors, what are you doing about that global piece? How do we actually work together to build better programs? You've got people like Austrade and they've got some great people that, got, that are helping once you get there. And But I think there's, and they do do some programs, I think there's still a lot more work to be done. So I think from a VC perspective, you know, again, helping companies, ensuring they've got the right foundations set up properly from the beginning and helping them think through the next expansion piece. Is it too early? How do they test that? How do they not waste money just going back and forth? I just see that all the time and I question, well, I'm like, why? You know, so that piece. So let's let's really, let's get them set up properly and then really focus on the globalisation piece and work out how we're going to increase the rate of success for Australian founders that do that. Yeah, I love that. We think about this all the time as well. And we've also had conversations with, Oz trained about that and they do have some programs but I agree I think we need to sort of collectively work far more collaboratively together on making sure they're ready. I think that's the first piece. We focus on being investment ready in Australia and then I think actually the the the, the most important next step or same step step one one a is 
when are you actually going to go global? And what does that mean? And are you actually ready? Because it's so true. You waste so much money and time. And equally for us, we want to be a global fund manager and people are already approaching us and we're like, hang on, what did you say before, Amanda? Discipline, focus, (laughs) get it right here first, show the traction. I hear it quite a bit. You once too, and people go, well, I'm just going to do this and then quick, I'm going to go to the US. Like, But yeah, I think I would love to have that conversation offline. I think there's a lot of work that can be done around that. And I think the founders that are listening, like it is worth investing in the are you ready and helping you understand what great looks like before you go. You know, that's what you should know in your head. Like if you don't understand that, that's what you should be asking people. And I think the other thing is getting founders, we need to get founders who have, I know it sounds bad, but who have not succeeded to speak now to us so we can get that information because what happens is we all know is you go through pain but you forget it over time. So I do find those stories get retold in a different way than what they do when you've actually failed. So it's sort of like if there are founders who have really had troubles in the state, please reach out. I'd love to just start. We've got a survey. We want to start interviewing those companies and collecting that information so we can use that to help other founders. So I think um, let's do that. Let's speak after this. <laughs> Amanda, it has been absolute pleasure to have you on the show and I think you're our last interview for this season. So I'm super excited. Like I said at the start, I've been wanting to meet you for a very long time. So thank you so much for your time, your openness, sharing a lot about yourself and and being vulnerable. I think there's going to be a lot of people that have learned a lot. I certainly have. And and we'll share all your recommendations in the show notes as well. So yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I've loved it. It's been so much fun. It's great. Thank you very much. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did. As an investment venture firm founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive like we do. We believe that education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both investors and founders. You can find them on our website. And if you're keen to invest and maximize your returns into Australia's best women-led startups, we have the perfect product for you, the Scaling Women's Fund. This is our solution to realize the significant opportunity in an overlooked market. Get in touch today by emailing us at ceo at scaleinvestors.com.au and make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you do not miss a minute.